Anthony Smith, lead economist at Freightways. That's me. That's you. You're Zach Strickland. Ah, right. I forgot. I'm Zach Strickland, director of freight market intelligence at Freightways. And here we are on another edition of Freightonomics. With another amazing intro with that music, this background, this background down here. It's just a lot (laughs) going on right now. We have, it's, it's been revamped. If you're watching, if you're watching on either LinkedIn or Facebook right now, speaking of which, we are on LinkedIn streaming live right now. So if you are watching, feel free to jump in and and chime in. We have Eric Serta, I think just just said all present and accounted for. So jump in on the conversation if you want to, you know. Yeah, if you're watching between 2 and 2.30 p.m. Eastern uh, daylight time on the East Coast. Yeah. That means you're watching us live. So otherwise, thank you for listening on the podcast and the recorded version. So Anthony Smith, uh, we are, you know, you're fresh off the, off the car ride, 14 hours from Boston. I don't know what you're talking about, Zach, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) shout out to Ray team for doing a great job on uh, the vehicle. And uh, yeah, it's it's been uh, an amazing ride. Um, all along the coast, almost. 14 hours straight through. So you lived, I mean, you would have been over your hours of service. I would have been. You were not allowed to do that. So you did Boston to Chattanooga from 7.45 p.m. last night. Yeah. And you got here right in front of Freightways Now this morning. That's right. Couldn't miss it for the world. It was, I was very appreciative. <laughs> Pulled <laughs> uh, right in. So 10, uh, 10.15-ish yep. this morning, uh, you know, you, would, you were definitely driving illegal. Yeah. Yeah. So uh-huh. <laughs> very appreciative for uh, my paper logs that I can kind of, yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty straight shot. Um, took forever to get through Pennsylvania and, and uh, Virginia. I'm sure many drivers, if they are listening right now, they're just like chump, you know, yeah. <laughs> you got nothing, dude. Exactly. You got nothing except for the fact that you were able to get out of the Northeast. Yeah. That's a very rare occurrence. So congratulations. You made it out of the Northeast Corridor Thank without you. having to go right back in. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. That's, that's actually gravy. If you yeah. can get out of the Northeastern Corridor into the Southeast where there's some freight movement that'll get you moving around the country, then... And I'm at Freight Alley. What better are. place to be than Chattanooga, <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm on that 75. So Freightonomics, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, that's right. It's Freightonomics. This is where we discuss, you know, economics, supply chain, how it all interacts, relates to freight, uh, relates to the, uh, you know, trucking movement. But it's all interconnected. You know, it's not necessarily all about trucking or brokerage or shipping, freight or transportation. It is all an interconnected intertangled mess of stuff that happens. And of course, this year has been one of the craziest uh, that we've seen so far. And on today's show, we're going to discuss some of the things that are inter- that are uh, interacting with freight rates or transportation rates and the, and, and the domestic freight market. Um, it's been one of the most, I, I guess, a question that I get asked quite a bit is, what's happening to capacity? Why are these brokers driving down rates? What's going on with the market? Like, why is it so volatile? What's, are rates going up? Are they going down? How are they, in, you know, there's so many factors here involving rates. And I think a lot of people uh, don't understand all the interactions that occur that drive a lot of, and of course, I'm going to talk more about the domestic trucking rates, right? because that's my specialty and it's easier for me to discuss. Uh, but we also have a lot of good data in, in that regard. But also, Anthony Smith, we've had some interesting developments with the economic recovery. Now, we had some stuff. It's, 
you know, I'm, to me, this is one of, this is yet again, so the common theme, I look for patterns. As an analyst, you always look for patterns uh, in data and things. And uh, certainly, I was actually a psychology minor. So one of my favorite patterns to look for is consistent human behavior. Mm. And one of the most consistent human behaviors we've seen is they have, and myself included, I'm going to go ahead and just lump myself right into there. We expected this to be a very slow, drawn-out recovery process. Right. Yet analysts expected retail sales growth to be, what, 5%? Somewhere around there, I think. Around 5 yeah. to 6% somewhere yeah, there? Yeah, sounds about right. And what did we get? Uh, so... In the most recent month, um, which I believe we have it for May. So we're looking at May retail sales, and it was a 17.7% jump. And that's off of a 23% drop from March to April? Yeah, it was a pretty significant drop. And I think that's that's kind of where my, my sticking point is with some of this latest economic data is, is we, I think, expected... Um, April to be the trough for most macroeconomic indicators. And so um, the thing to really keep in mind is not mixing up um, the changes and the levels because we can have uh, these dramatic, drastic changes where it was at these lows that, that were hit in April. And because it was so low, we're going to have, you know, seemingly, um, you know, rise in, in the levels. And so it's all good to keep that into perspective. So, for example, um, retail sales was up 17.7%, but still down 6.1% um, year over year. So it's important to, okay, we see that rise, that rebound from that um, absolute trough that was April, but um, there's still a long way to go. So it's, it's, it's encouraging to see that double-digit month-to-month rise, but knowing that we still are far behind where we were this time last year is also something to keep in mind when we're looking at these numbers. Yeah, I think that's a valid point, especially, I mean, again, everybody expecting a slow, drawn-out recovery. Uh, again, I'm in that same boat. Uh, you know, Craig Fuller obviously disagreed with me, and he, he probably he won the outcome. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is good news yeah. in my mind. Yeah. This is still good news. It means that even with all the stuff that's going on in 2020, which has turned out to be a natural disaster on its own accord, uh, Yeah. You know, we're, we're getting a, a much stronger recovery signal. It looks like, speaking of natural disasters, a natural disaster outcome. So natural disasters, of course, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, they tend to have very sharp, acute impacts into local economies. In our version of this, it's a macro economy. Uh, but it is very short. You know, as quickly as it drops, it comes back just as as fast. So... In my mind, this is uh, another supporting statistic for a V-shaped recovery. Yeah. You agree? Uh, meh. I mean, on the retail side for sure. But it's obviously we're gonna, you know, we've got some other numbers that say that not everywhere is it a V-shaped recovery. Sure. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, and I mean, I I I love looking at the month to month, but I always go back to that year to year. Like, okay, this is nice, but what were we? What were you doing this time last year? But uh, and, and I think it's a good point that you mentioned, like the natural disaster aspect of it, because this is something you brought up, I think, um, months ago when this all first kind of kicked off, um, really kind of framing this as a natural disaster and how that typically um, uh, kind of evolves um, compared to uh, set frameworks of an actual cyclical recession that's been 
it, and it works for quarters and quarters and quarters and gets compounded, and that's a little bit more harder to come out of. When you have sudden shocks like this, typically you have sudden shocks back up. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing, especially on your side when you're looking at freight volumes, mm-hmm. um, that, that shock back up um, after everything is really kind of starting to get back online. And we're starting to see, of course, you know, retail sales and industrial production starting to mildly improve those wheels kind of turning on the road. So industrial production, that you mentioned that. Now, that's been a struggling sector of the economy. Before COVID-19 and all that happened, uh, the industrial economy had really been struggling to get going. We were starting to see the initial signs of it maybe getting back on track slightly, but it certainly wasn't you know, growing robustly by any means. Right. Uh, what are we seeing now? We, we just had those that release, correct? That's right. So industrial production, just as you mentioned, was an area that was definitely struggling. Um, a lot of it, business uncertainties, and especially when we're looking at a separate measure, non-defense capital goods, new orders, business investment was low, business to business activity was low. Um, and that really kind of declined through the latter half of 2019. Um, and so in the most recent month, uh, we saw that there was an increase of 1.4% from last month. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, last month hit a historical low. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting better than the worst. We're better than the worst. <laughs> and so it's, it's a tick up from the absolute worst that's ever been recorded uh, and, and still down 15.3%. So it's, again, that trough has likely been reached. Yep. And we're starting to see some upward movement. Of course, I'd like to see con- uh, consecutive month-to-month movement to kind of call it or to be indicative of a trend. But um, I think it's safe to say of our expectations of April really being that trough. Now, this feels like a real, like, this does feel like a meh. This feels definite, like, retail went down 23%, up 17.5%. Industrial production down 17% up yeah. 1%. This is definitely one of those like, oh, we did not recover out of the industrial side yeah. whatsoever. And this one is very important for freight movement. Um, to me, this is a critical sector uh, for the freight transportation industry and the economy in general. Yeah. Uh, if they want to get back on track and have sustainability, the industrial economy has to recover uh, You know, for us to have any kind of growth in the economy and sustainability moving forward, especially on that freight transportation side. Uh, The industrial economy, a lot of manufacturing, you know, a lot of utilities in there. Uh, If if you don't have that business investment, you don't have a lot of big stuff moving in the United States right now. Now, the consumer has really been driving a lot of, you know, the economic growth here the last several years. And, but the industrial side is really where you can have some of that more efficient growth, sustainable growth. Consumers are fickle, yeah. uh, as I've noted, you know, with your sentiment indexes. It's important. You, you know, I'm a consumer <laughs> myself, so I understand. I, I'm literally applying myself to that same population, so I know that it's a, a little bit emotional there. But at the same time, they've done a good job of keeping the economy, you know, really up while a lot of the industrial movement is down. Now, I guess my question to you, Anthony Smith, is we have seen such a dramatic, you know, uh, amount of volatility with supply chain management here in the last year, 18 months. Yeah. Started with a trade war, you know, with China. And now we have this, you know, things were starting to get a little bit more, you know, back on track. And then all of a sudden COVID-19 happens again, originating in China, uh, you know, pull policies fall apart, relationships fall apart a little bit. We're starting to see a little bit of those similar patterns in freight where we see a lot of trade war, you know, back and forth, 
potentially starting back up again, especially once this all clears up, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. But, you know, are we going to see more manufacturing and industrial come back to the United States? Uh, we could, um, but nothing that's going to, I think, be deeply impacting. And so when we're looking at uh, manufacturing in the U.S., it's not that we don't manufacture a whole lot is that our manufacturing a lot of times is automated. So when we do move manufacturing back to uh, nearshoring, it's not going to be something that's going to supply a lot of jobs or something that's being on a, a mass uh, infrastructure scale. So the thing is, is I think we chatted about this earlier in, in Freightonomics and maybe some other platforms, but um, China is such a, a massive resource. And to, to try to replace that much of, uh, of an infrastructure is very difficult. We can't just replicate that and copy and paste it into Mexico and have our nearshoring with our, our southern neighbors here or copy and paste it into uh, Nebraska. It's just they are perfectly set up. And so that's going to be very difficult for them because uh, or to replace them. Um, I think uh, we've heard talks of India probably coming up. But the China's been built and honed their specialties around being uh, um, the most uh, price-efficient and cost, or cost efficient and uh, accessible um, manufacturing outlet for the, for trading partners throughout the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, the old adage, water takes the path of least resistance. Yeah. And that's the way that business works as well. Uh, if, you, if you present businesses with, you know, a cost structure that's more favorable and they get similar quality or not as much, you know, obviously there's a trade-off there in quality, uh, but similar quality, for less cost, they're going to take it. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, to your point, the infrastructure in China is just so overwhelmingly set up for doing yeah. what it's doing as compared to, say, a Vietnam, an India, Mexico even. We just don't have, like, that's not a switch that you can flip right. overnight. And it's very it's very prevalent in the, uh, in the data we're looking at. We're looking at the data that supports... Uh, you know, the West Coast, a lot of West Coast freight right now. Yeah. Everybody had been shifting to the East Coast last year. Now yeah. all of a sudden it's like, we'll take whatever we can get coming into the West Coast. We're going to pull all that freight into the country. Los Angeles right now is one of the tightest spaces in the country. A lot of long-haul freight volumes pushing off the coast right now. And you cannot, you know, you, you just can't deny it. I mean, we've, we've got, you know, it's not necessarily panic buying, but it's almost panic shipping. Yeah, They're anticipating uh, further, you know, geopolitical concerns as well as another COVID-19 outbreak. Will they have the ability to get some of the freight into the United States if we have another round of this, this virus? God help us if we do. Um, you know, and I, I think that's something to keep in mind for the rest of the year. Yeah. I think, you know, to the industrial production numbers point, we are sitting on a lot of cash. People are not investing right now. They're, even though they may be profitable, I've heard a lot of you know anecdotal stories about how people are actually doing better now uh, than they were last year. And again, I, we have data that supports that that is entirely possible for a large portion of the population, especially in the transportation space. Sure. Uh, tender rejection rates up year over year. Tender volumes up year over year significantly yeah. over 2019. And that's going to drive... This is what drives me into the topic of the day. Who, what is driving rates in the transportation space? We've got a recovering economy, fast in some areas, retail, consumer spending, slow in others. 
who has the leverage this year? Who has the ability to move these rates? Now, a lot of people, especially on our social media, uh, get on there and start talking about how brokers are driving rates down. Mm. Well, all brokers are doing essentially is providing, you know, transparency, a competitive platform for shippers to bid on freight. And they are com connecting the carriers and the shippers. And they'll, if they don't like what they see in one carrier, they'll go to the next. Some of these carriers are low-cost carriers. There's a trade-off there. This yeah. space is so overwhelmingly competitive. You cannot simply say, you know, uh, take the LTL space, for instance. Yeah. There's very few low-cost LTL providers out there because it's so expensive to enter the LTL space. Less than truckload LTL. Um, Old Dominion, considered one of the most, uh, the premier LTL carrier in the United States. I might say blue chip. Yeah, it's a blue chip stock for sure, but... <laughs> You know, it's they they have they're they're revered with in terms of their service and but at the same time they're not the cheapest carrier. Yeah, um, you can go to the like Conway back in the day uh, before XPO bottom was also considered in this same realm. XPO still has uh, you know this infrastructure embedded in their in their plate, but it's much more difficult to separate them from the rest. So it's not a pure LTL carrier anymore. But uh, Old Dominion, of course, considered one of the most premier LTL carriers in the country, not the cheapest LTL carrier, yet they still get a ton of freight. And you have to have freight to have an efficient freight network and, and less than truckload. So who is driving the rates? Who's driving these rate fluctuations in the United States? We've got volumes increasing 6% year over year. We've got tender rejection rates up about 1.5% year over year, or 150 basis points, I should say. We're around 5.1% last year. We're up around 6.6% this year. Uh, not a significant change in terms of tender rejection rate, but spot rates up 4.8% on the long haul market uh, year over year. So most of the stats are supporting a better freight year <laughs> than last year, except for one thing, Anthony. What's that? It's not all about that spot. It's not all about that spot market. And the spot I thought market spot was all there was, Zach. No. The spot market represents anywhere from ten to fifteen percent. And I'm not gonna get into the semantics of defining spot versus contract freight. You mean As there's you, a whole other thing, contract it's, freight? It's, oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> did we do a series on this? We did. We oh, did way we back go. when. There we go. Um but at the same time, so contracted rates are typically what we consider, you know, something that a shipper enters into an agreement with with a carrier or a broker that has managed transportation aspect. They have a set rate. They know that going from Atlanta to Philadelphia, they're going to pay $1.60 a mile if they offer that, that freight to the carrier or the broker. Right. Guaranteed. Whether or not they hand that freight off after the fact is another debate altogether. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> But at the same time, you're, you're talking about a market where uh, brokers have been beat up yeah. uh, for basically saying, all right, we're going to carry this for this and this and this. Spot freight is 10 to 15% of the market, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and in a market like this, you're talking about all these bids that went out la late last year, they got accepted. CAS, CAS, uh, the freight indexes. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with CAS. I've heard it once or twice. So they're an invoicing company, and they, uh, they represent, what, about $30 billion of freight um, movement in the United States? Well, CAS came out, and their line haul index, so their CAS truckload line haul index, it is simply an index that measures 
the rate <laughs> or the amount of spend on pure truckload moves, less accessorial fees like fuel, inside delivery, lift gates, all that other nonsense uh, that people like to spend on top of it. And that declined 6.6% year over year in January, Anthony. Guess what it was in May, year over year? Uh, I know I wrote it in the notes, so you can you could probably answer. I'm guessing it moved down. Five <laughs> percent. So we are five percent down year over year. So we actually increased over January. We've increased the diff the discrepancy in year over year rates, um, you know, by a full percent. So what this tells me, and again, Cass is an invoicing company. They have some spot market influence but a large portion of what they're measuring is contracted freight rates. Right. When you see a massive decline in a single month, especially in the beginning of the year, it's an indication that contracted rates had some contraction. Gotcha. So we've already seen a large point of contraction this year. Yeah. You know who, you know who manages those bids? Who? Carriers. Not brokers? They're, it's not the spot market. That's <laughs> right. It's not the spot market. This is the contract market. That's right. It's the contract market that's determining this baseline for freight rates. Gotcha. So spot market rates, again, they go down for a period of time. They pull contracted rates down. Spot rates go up for a period of time. They pull contracted rates up. Last year, we can see that carriers actually set the bar because uh, they bid on those a lot. Again, I'm basically lumping in some of these brokers or, you know, 3PLs, because they do, they have managed transportation. They basically act as the transportation managers for shipping accounts, um, taking on the liability or the risk of the freight market without having assets. So they have, they basically bid out the, they do the same thing. So if Target were to, you know, ask a, a 3PL to manage their transportation, I want you to figure out how to get all this freight from point A to point B throughout the United States this year, all over my network. They will take that risk on. They don't have any assets. They bid that freight over to a carrier or several carriers to ensure that that movement happens. Right. They are concerned about rates and service. That's it. Gotcha. <laughs> Capacity is in that service requirement. So I'm kind of lumping those two together. But the fact that we already saw rates kind of drop this year is an indi indication, you know, especially on the CAS line haul index there, which is a very clean, pure number, uh, tells me that carriers are largely responsible for a lot of the rate decline year over year that we've seen. Uh, the spot market is up 4.8%, but that's only 10 to 15% of the market, as we know. So, you know, if they stay elevated, I think we can start to expect, like we did month over month, an increase in the in the line haul index it was actually a half a percent up yeah from april to may uh so again the longer that the spot market stays over the top of contract the longer you know that means that we're going to see these contracted rates expand okay. so anybody out there complaining about brokers driving rates down they are correct to an extent but it's only because they are just simply adding competition to it Right. It's no different than another carrier entering the, entering the space. It's just like another carrier being like, okay, I'm here now. I'm going to drive this down. <laughs> yeah. And they have access to multiple carriers. So right. they, they really try to leverage uh, the carriers against each other in that regard, but not always, because there's also the aspect, like I said in the Old Dominion example, of service. 
There's got to be service there. Standard of service there. There's service and rates. It's not just service. So, uh, you know, always be mindful of that. And I think this year, again, is more of a product of the previous few years. You know, 2018, super hot. Did you read my article this weekend? I know you were in Boston eating those lobster rolls. I may have had one or seven. <laughs> in the course of three they or four days. They are delicious. <laughs> I, I, do, I do love a good lobster roll. So I wrote an article this weekend, mm. and I basically, I, I got a little clickbaity, Anthony, basically saying. I'm all for it. I mean, I, I did. I, every now and again, I like to get a little clickbaity just to get people's attention, you know, get into the, get into the mess for a minute. Uh, and I basically said 2018 was actually worse for carriers than 2020. Yeah, I, remember that. I remember seeing that. So the point was, is not necessarily that carriers had a bad year in 2018. They had a fantastic year in 2018. But the results of that overheated 2018, we are still paying for today. And 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 if you look at the CAS index there with that 6% year-over-year decline in January, prior to COVID-19, already happened. We we hadn't even barely thought about COVID-19. 6.5% year-over-year down in truckload cost. It's actually gotten better. We've actually gotten better in terms of rates since that point in time. So 2018, all this robust growth, super fast, two two major hurricanes, you know, natural disasters sucking up that capacity, ELD implementation, hard implementation in December of 2017, and then again in April of 2018, tender rejection rates were up around 20, 25%. Then all of a sudden we go back to normal. Yeah. We had all these tax exemptions. We had all this new uh, depreciation we could write off. Uh, so business investment, all-time high. All of a sudden, all that diminishes. Yeah. Everything kind of goes away all at once, too. So it's almost like we were addicted <laughs> yeah. to this super, this shot of adrenaline yeah. that has to fade out, and we're still dealing with that. And I think... Uh, it really pulled in a lot of folks, right, that yeah. to come into the industry, and I think that we saw that flushing throughout 2019, essentially. Yep. And we saw a record number of trucking failures yeah. uh, in 2019, which actually, you know, one of the biggest questions I get now is, are we going to see an acceleration of that trucking failure data? And yeah. I'm like, don't get too excited, people. I know there's people out there that are excited because there's, you know, they think that this is going to diminish capacity. Look at what the freight market did in 2018 when it got a couple extra dollars. It just went out and bought a bunch of trucks. Yeah. <laughs> they bought too many trucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and then it depressed rates even further. And it's harder to con- deal with the contraction of rates than it is the expansion of rates. So getting that 2 to 3% GRI, a lot better than that 10% GRI followed by 8% contraction. <laughs> right, right. You know what I'm saying? So, And we have uh, a couple real quick. Let's do LinkedIn. it. Just small stuff. Calvin Johnson says hello from GNR Logistics Mississippi. Uh, Tim Dooner himself says, Anthony is hooked on economics and Sour Patch Kids. I haven't had a Sour Patch Kid in. It's been well over a day, Dooner, right? So <laughs> about that? Um, Eric Serta says, economists look for human behavioral patterns. Good luck with nailing that down. No <laughs> joke. Um, well said. Nurfad says, I will take relationship and best performance over crap service and cheap freight. There you go. Um, and, uh, and Anthony... I'm not going to try to pronounce your last name, but he has a great first name. And Anthony <laughs> is saying hello from Dallas, Fort Worth. But 
Yeah, I mean, I think that is a, a lot of great information, especially when we're looking at in perspective of what was happening in 2018 in comparison as to what's happening right now. Yeah, and and you and you can't be prisoner of the moment too much. Obviously, you got to look forward. And this year has, you know, a lot of I'm hesitant to say it uncertainty. There it is. <laughs> I wish I had like a deeper voice where I go uncertainty, uncertainty <laughs> left in it. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a lot of fluctuation variation in the patterns as shippers haven't under, you know, they don't have a full understanding of forecasting demand. Carriers can't see that coming either. There's going to be some disconnection. Supply chains aren't going to change overnight, but I do have one question for you. Let's hear it. Do you like chicken better fried or grilled? Uh, I don't like chicken. Turkey. Incorrect. It's Turkey's fried. the correct answer. It is fried all the time. Turkey. Grilled chicken is garbage. I don't even eat birds. I eat fish and seafood only. But you've had fried chicken. Eh, I prefer turkey. This is, I don't even understand why we have these conversations. Turkey. This turkey is over everything. Turkey is flavorless. Get a turkey sandwich, take a nap. Thanksgiving, the vibe. You know what I use turkey for? Putting other stuff on so it tastes like something. <laughs>